1: You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
0: Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr.
1: Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. You can learn more about the show, see some enhanced content at our website, theyogahour.com. Our topic today is how the study of yoga's ancient roots can deepen our yoga practice by inviting greater empathy, inclusivity, and connection with each other and the world. I'm quite delighted to be joined today by Susanna Barkataki, who is a certified yoga therapist, teacher, inclusivity promoter, and yoga culture advocate. As an Indian yoga practitioner in the Shankaracharya tradition, her passion is to help others bridge the gap between yoga as an exercise and yoga as a lifestyle. Susanna Barkataki is founder of Ignite Yoga and Wellness Institute and runs both 200 and 500-hour yoga teacher training programs. Susanna has an honors degree in philosophy from UC Berkeley and a master's in education from Cambridge College. She's also a certified diversity, accessibility, inclusivity, and equity educator. You can find out more about Susanna Barkataki, her book, and her teaching schedule at her website, which is her name name Susanna, S-U-S-A-N-N-A, Barkataki, B-A-R-K-A-T-A-K-I, SusannaBarkataki.com. You can also follow her on Instagram at Susanna Barkataki. So welcome, Susanna Barkataki. I'm delighted to have you join me on the Yoga Hour today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So before we begin our dialogue about deepening our yoga practice by embracing the ancient science of yoga, let's begin with a yoga moment, a moment of present awareness. So let's begin by bringing our attention and awareness just to our bodies in space. And just be aware of our posture, be aware of how we're sitting, particularly be aware of any surfaces that are supporting our weight. So perhaps we're sitting in a chair, maybe our feet are on the floor, perhaps we're walking. But whatever we're doing, wherever we are, just feeling those surfaces that support our body. And then turn our attention to the breath, wonderful tool that's always with us. Just notice as we take a fully conscious breath, noticing the next inhale and exhale. On the next inhale, noticing the cool air in the nostrils. And on the next exhale, feel how the air has been warmed as it passes through the lungs And continuing to follow our breath, not trying to change the natural flow, but just noticing. And as we rest here, right where we are, here's some guidance to contemplate from the Yoga Hours founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. Yogacharya O'Brien writes, On our spiritual journey through life, dharmic questions arise for us to attend to. One of these essential questions comes when we witness injustice. We must ask ourselves, what is mine to do? We search our hearts, our intellect, and the teachings of our tradition. How does Kriya Yoga guide us in troubled times? Are we to remain contemplatives only, or must we act Is action in support of justice in harmony with an Enlightenment tradition? I have pondered, studied, and prayed about these questions and realize that our tradition provides all that we need to do the right thing. As usual, it requires us to engage, be fully present, awake, aware, and willing to learn, grow, and serve. As usual, it requires us to engage, be fully present, awake, aware, and willing to learn, grow, and serve. Om. Once again, Susanna Barkataki, welcome to the Yoga Hour. So in the West, many people see yoga more narrowly as a form of exercise and do not realize, as you say in the title of your book, Embrace Yoga's Roots, don't realize that yoga does have these roots that are much, much bigger than a system of exercise. Yoga is an ancient Indian spiritual philosophy And the postures or asana that are taught in yoga classes are just one very small part of the greater practice of yoga. As I said in the opening here on the Yoga Hour, we really do explore yoga in all its depth and breadth. The Center for Spiritual Enlightenment that sponsors this podcast is a meditation and spiritual practice center focusing on the practices of Kriya Yoga that are described in the scripture, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. So you are an Indian woman living here in the West, teaching and practicing yoga, but also teaching about diversity, inclusivity, and equity. In your book, you bring attention to many things, including racism, inequity, and lack of diversity in yoga classes and programs. So what inspired you to write the book?
0: Mm,
1: Yes. (laughs)
0: So I think I've reflected on how this book I think has been about 20 years, maybe my whole life really in the making, because I, as a immigrant to the United States and as someone who's mixed, uh, my father's from Assam in India and my mother is British. I never felt like I belonged. And I always felt an experience of separation um, everywhere I was and even inside myself. And I was lucky in that I had my family, um, my Assamese and Bengali family, who were yoga practitioners and would share different aspects. You know, not so much asana. It's not that they were doing asana. It was more of the ethics and different other, you know, meditation, dharana, dhyana practices, mindfulness practices, focus practices. And although I had all that, I still felt disconnect when I went to try to practice yoga in the west and I couldn't make sense of you know what was happening at the temple or with my family and then it was happening at the studio down the street and why they were so different and it took me then another maybe decade of understanding the social dynamics the power dynamics um, everything that was at play to be able to make sense of my own life and the experiences I was having, as well as so much of that being mirrored in what was happening with yoga in the West. And Mm -hmm. so the book came out of that, that journey Mm -hmm. of wanting to understand really myself, you know, which is the journey of yoga anyway. And, um, and then share that with others.
1: Yes. Well, well said, you know, the, that's the journey of yoga anyway, (laughs) to really (laughs) try and understand ourselves. So, so what, would be your goal with the book or your hope about what it might accomplish?
0: Yeah. You know, there's so much in there. Um, and I think I, I have more than one goal. (laughs) That's okay. You can have,
1: you can have more than one.
0: I'll share, I think two, two main ones that are coming to me right now. Um, one is, is just like your Institute, um, which is for people to understand that yoga is far more than just physical, you know, in the last uh, there's three there's four sections separation um, self reflection reconnection through action and then the fourth section is liberation and that section on liberation is really that the full expanse of all of what yoga can be and yoga ethics but for me this book was sort of like we need to look at the breakdowns so we can get to the breakthrough And we need to look at where we've gone awry and what is not working because the truth is, you know, there's racial uprisings, there's environmental destruction. There's so many things that when we look at our lives and maybe even internal anxiety or discomfort that aren't lining up. And if we don't look at the root causes of those things, then we can't just jump right to unity and we're all one. And so I wanted to give people the tools and the language in a yogic framework to look at that breakdown in order to get free um, for themselves and then for us as a community and as a society. Mm-hmm. Kind of a lofty goal, I
1: guess, for one book. <laughs> uh, no, I think it's great. I really do. And I really appreciate your setting yoga in the much, much larger context of liberation, because that really is what the yoga teachings are about. And sometimes it surprises people people who come in through a more narrow doorway of just yoga as exercise and then they might be pointed to patanjali's yoga sutras which we'll ask you i'll ask you more about in just a sec but um and then they realize out of all of the what is it 180 some 186 aphorisms that there are in the yoga sutras there's really only such a small number that are associated with postures Mm -hmm. you know so it doesn't really have tips about you know where you you know (laughs) you're breathing or where you put your hips in downward dog or whatever you know it's not that's not what the yoga sutras are about it really is you know such a much larger context Mm -hmm. and so that's why it's really delightful for me to have you on the show and be able to talk about that with you and and bring some things that you mention in the book into our conversation so one of the things that I appreciated about the book is that you are looking at it not just through the lens that you've mentioned of, well, of your own self-study, but also the, the um, contrasts and kind of jarring things that you would sometimes see in yoga class, but also looking at it from the perspective of our broader world. So um, can you can you say a little bit more about that? Yes. I mean,
0: there's so much context that. I think people miss with how yoga has comes to us in the West. And it's only been in the West for around, you know, maybe 150 years Mm -hmm. yet yoga was practiced and codified and developed for hundreds and thousands, actually thousands of years Mm -hmm. in India in particular. And, you know, what is now Pakistan in as part of the Indus River Valley and Saraswati River Valley civilizations and perhaps even further back, you know, we don't really know, but the oral tradition um, tells us that yoga has been practiced for 10,000 years or more, even though when you look at Western kind of modes of analysis or assessment of that, it would be hard to find evidence to point to it. And so that right there actually is part of the issue um, that I think and the tension that comes up, which is we're in the West, we're looking at a tradition from an outside perspective, as opposed to exploring it and looking at it from within the culture that it comes from. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, sometimes there can be misunderstandings or misuse or kind of disconnect of what yoga really is. And so the other important thing to know is, there's not one answer to that question. You know, in India, back in, you know, I'm talking like, say, 2500, Well, or let's say around 500 um, BCE, so around 2,500 years ago, there were different streams of practice. There were different understandings and different lineages that all were agreeing to disagree about what yoga was or about what liberation, what the best path to liberation would be. And there was agreement, though, that we could all agree to disagree. And not say, oh, your path is wrong. You know, it wasn't like people went to war over different, you know, yoga philosophies. However, um, today, I feel like we sort of collapse and said everyone has to practice in this one way or that one way or else they're doing it wrong. And and so it's really important to understand that part of what yoga is, is really a a conversation upon disagreement about the best way to live and how to get to liberation And there's a whole philosophical tradition that in the West, perhaps because of racism or Orientalism, just doesn't even get recognized as a valid body of thought the way, say, you know, Platonism would or um, Aristotle and his body of work, right? We don't look at yoga in the same way, but it actually is the same Mm -hmm. thing
1: as a whole body of philosophy. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned in the book, of course, this Sanskrit word that we throw around so easily now, yoga. And you do mention that there are many, many definitions of what yoga is, but the Sanskrit root has to do with yoking or and so we say union or unity, oneness with the source of all life. And that source of all life, of course, is is described in many different words. Some say the infinite, the divine, or God, but basically meaning this oneness, this this something that we are all a part of, that we are all connected with each other and with all of life. And we've Pointed a little bit to already to the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, and I, I have my note here. I can tell you it's actually 195, so I was yes. a few a few a few aphorisms short there in my prior <laughs> my prior ad lib, 195 short aphorisms that teach us about the principles of yoga. And you particularly point to two sutras in the first um, in the beginning of your book. Uh, two sutras that come from these uh, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. So what Mm -hmm. are those two sutras and why did you choose to highlight those in your description of yoga? Yes,
0: you know, honestly, uh, I am hoping to work on a whole other translation of the Yoga Sutras at some point (laughs) because I could have picked any. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, In that same nature of yoga being interconnectedness, I really see that in any one sutra, you find all the other sutras. Mm-hmm. And so I, I pick um, sutra 1.2, yogas, chitta, vritti, nirodha, because that's one that a lot of people refer to. Right. And use as a definition of, you know, yoga is um, stilling the, the mind, which is one way of, you know, I don't wish to like, undo that interpretation but I think there's more nuance there and that when we look at vritti um, it or I I guess vritti is like the modifications or um, the it it can also mean a kind of way of being in the world like moral behavior or a way of being and so yoga isn't necessarily just the calming or the supporting of the changing of our, our mental experience, it can also be yoga is a way of engaging or living in the world in an ethical and moral way. Mm-hmm. And that interpretation isn't shared so much. It was shared with me more by my teacher Shankarji. And then also um, more recently, I've been reading Dr. Shamranganathan's translation of the yoga sutras. And I really appreciate, appreciate this translation He's a, um, a South Asian author and moral philosopher of yoga. And so I wanted to give a slightly different kind of perspective on a sutra that's often used to define yoga. And then the reason I picked 1.12, um, which is Abhyasa Vairagviam Tanirodaha, is I often find that for me, yoga practice is this. Uh, in my day to day life, as as a householder, it's a dance between effort and letting go. And so, abhyasa, effort, sustained, you know, attention, care, even tapas, like um, fiery kind of focused devotion, and then vairagya, letting go um, of mm-hmm. the fruits of my actions. And so, that one felt important as well. Because as we work towards yoga in the world, you know, unity in the world, um, we're going to have to do both of those things.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I love that description. That's a dance between effort and letting go. So it's really nice. So from your perspective, why do you think it's important to embrace yoga's roots? Yeah. Um, I mean,
0: there's this sort of, cultural important reason, but I actually want to start with, I I know yoga isn't a cure-all for all of the problems in our world, but like you and I were talking about at the beginning, you know, at the Institute, when you have an issue or a problem, like a real world major ethical or, or you know, even logistical problem, in my life, I turn to the yoga sutras to find solutions. And so I do believe that by, embracing yoga's roots, we actually will move towards a more harmonious, a more caring, a more loving, a more whole world. And perhaps even, you know, a um, one that can continue um, in terms of environmental destruction or, or, you know, rifts and political and social violence. So for me, yoga is that pathway to uh, sustained existence of, of humankind. Now, again, I know that that may be for others, you might say, no, there's this hole or that hole. And, and absolutely, you know, it's not the only tool for, for everyone. Um, but to me, it's, it's a practice that was developed and codified by people who knew what they were doing mm-hmm. since of years ago. And it has sustained for a reason. And it's why we find today, like when we, even if we get on our yoga mat, and practice asana it's different than if we just stretched the experience mm-hmm. is different and it's because the system works mm-hmm. and so that is for me the, the main reason is let's utilize a system of liberation that can help uh heal and and kind of support us all and then the second reason is the cultural reason which is because this is a practice and um teaching that comes from india And it's important to look at the history and understand
1: that history and respect the culture that the practice comes from. Indeed. And we will. I really want to ask you a bit more about that. Um, And I, I did want to share with listeners what you and I were talking about right before the program began, which is that I Um, This program is sponsored by the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. It's a Kriya Yoga Meditation Center in San Jose, California. Lots of online stuff going on now, of course. And um, I was on the board of directors for 10 years, and I was sharing with you, Susanna, and I know that I've shared it with listeners. So what we would always do in in a large-ish meditation center, there are always things that come up, and particularly over a period of 10 years. And there was always wisdom that we could draw from always wisdom that we could draw from in the yamas and the niyamas and other parts of of, um, yoga practice and philosophy to help us solve whatever issue was coming up. So I I just wanted to mention that because, you know, you had referred to it, and I don't know if I've ever mentioned that on the show. So you mentioned in the book, you focus a lot on social justice, and you describe yoga as a science of social justice. So can you say more about that?
0: Yes, Absolutely. You know, the very first of the yamas is ahimsa, which is non harm, not just to ourselves, but the interpretation of ahimsa that I've been taught in the Shankaracharya tradition is to interrupt harm wherever we may find it, right? If the goal of yoga is to create sovereign, uh, independent, free beings, then if there's oppression or there's inequity or there's poverty, that that material condition stops that other being from experiencing liberation. And so if I'm a practitioner of yoga, then part of my commitment to the path of yoga, to ahimsa, to non-harm, is to actually try to change those conditions so others can experience liberation as well. And again, I want to acknowledge there are some schools that are just concerned with individual liberation. And that's fine. That's a particular path and a particular practice, but that's not the school um, that I come from. The school that I come from looks at everyone as interconnected and so is looking to create liberation for all. And so right there, right away, you know, when we look at what is social justice, well, it's, it's creating equality, creating equity, making sure everyone has what they need to thrive, to survive, And so yoga naturally becomes a pathway of that kind of engaged personal and social transformation.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The um, principles, as I as um, we've been talking about, starting with this this idea of unity and this feeling that we are all one, And, and I really like in the book how you delineate between okay, what's yoga. Big yoga, not yoga on the mat, not the asanas, but big yoga. What is you know, yoga? Is anything that promotes unity. Then anything that moves us along that along that spectrum. And what's not yoga would be anything that doesn't uh, do that. Mm. So we got about another minute before the break. You want to say a little bit about that? Mm.
0: Yes, you know, I had a student once who was really interested in telling me they don't see color. Um, And what that means, though, is they don't see all of who I am or all Mm. of my unique beauty and culture. And so when I was able to explain that to them, they are like, oh, that's not what I mean. Right. I want to see all of you. And so what we came to is there can be differences, but what we're aiming for is that unity kind of around or
1: beneath or above all those differences indeed Um, and with that we've come to the break you're listening to the yoga hour with my guest susanna barkataki susanna is a certified yoga therapist teacher inclusivity promoter and yoga culture advocate she's the author of the book we're discussing today embrace yoga's roots courageous ways to deepen your yoga practice Her website is susanna.barkataki.com, and we will be posting links to her website and to her book on our website, theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us through the website, theyogahour.com. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host of the show. When we come back from the break, we'll explore more about how the ancient science of yoga supports us in practicing yoga with deeper inclusivity and equality. We'll be right back. Practical Spirituality Positive Messages This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
0: Welcome back to the Yoga Hour,
1: Insights and Practices for Spiritually Conscious Living. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, and I'm here today with Susanna Barkataki, Author of the book we're discussing today, Embrace Yoga's Roots Courageous Ways to Deepen Your Yoga Practice. I should also remind listeners they can uh, check out Susanna Barkataki at her website, which is her name, and also on Instagram um, at Susanna Barkataki. So, Susanna, you've developed a framework that you present in the book that supports us in evaluating how we are embracing yoga. And you use that framework, return to it throughout the book. And I thought it was a a very useful framework. So um, would you review the four questions that you have developed for our listeners? Absolutely. So
0: the four questions that I use, and I use this for myself, are one, is this situation or this action I'm about to do, is it causing separation? Is it unsafe, harmful? Or is it safe, kind? And I keep in mind practicing ahimsa or non-harm and kindness. The second question I ask is, am I embracing roots? And I consider whether I'm embracing yoga's roots and lineage as well as my own, you know, roots and values. And I practice vichara, which is kind of like discernment and satya, wisdom, deep listening and speaking my truth. The third question, does this action create connection to myself, to others, for a group? And I practice yoga as tapas by taking action to uplift others. And then the fourth question, does it lead to unity and liberation? Does it make you and or others more mindful, free, peaceful, powerful, or calm? Does it contribute to systemic change for human uplift? And here I think about yoga as a practice of unity for samadhi to create liberation for all people and beings.
1: You present these in the book and you do return to them over and over again in the book, Mm. how does reflecting on these questions support us in deepening our practice? Yeah.
0: I mean, for me, it helps me practice. I feel like it helps me take yoga kind of philosophy out of a book or out of my head and into my life and it helps me bring it alive so for example I'm a parent I have an eight-year-old child right and in making choices which there's often you know as we know there's so many different ways to to do a certain thing like so to raise a child or parent another being and I'll often kind of run through these questions for myself in my parenting right is this causing separation Um, am I sharing our values our culture um Am I creating connection here? Does this help support uh, my kiddos' unity and liberation, right, and my own and this context? And so and I can maybe even run through these questions when I'm thinking about um, if they get to join a sports team or if they are going to go to an after-school enrichment program. You know, it's like very everyday things that I can use this structure to help guide me on. And, and my hope is that for others, it helps as well, including for yoga teachers, for people who are teaching us in the classes, you can ask yourself these questions. Um, for example, if you're teaching in a way that's mm, helping people feel like yoga is
1: for them, like it's inclusive for them as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we spoke a little bit over the break between the sections just a few moments ago about how the images that we see on, for example, yoga magazines, which are often displayed by the checkout counter. And typically, the images are very uniform. It typically is someone who's white, who's thin, who is doing some very complicated very complex pose and a lot of people would look at that and say I'm not interested in yoga I don't think I belong there
0: yeah yeah it's harmful really right like and and it's tricky because it's not necessarily intentional but if we make the image of who practices yoga just this very normative image then there's all the rest of us that are left out which Mm -hmm. and can other folks, you know, folks with disabilities, folks of different size, different color, different, you know, age, can we all benefit from yoga? Of course, right? Yes. So, um, absolutely. So it's, it is. <laughs> and that's another kind of reason that I wrote this book is to really show people or hopefully help reflect for people, you are what a yoga practitioner looks like. Mm -hmm. You are what a yoga teacher, if you are living yoga, not just teaching asana, but if you're living yoga, you are what a yoga teacher can look like um, Mm -hmm. in our modern
1: context. Mm -hmm. I like the way you said that living yoga. In other Mm -hmm. words, yoga extending off the mat and into every aspect of our lives, which we've Mm -hmm. talked about as there definitely is a big enough philosophy there for people who are interested in looking into it that can touch every aspect of our lives.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: One of the foundational practices of yoga is, as you mentioned, this first yama of harmlessness or nonviolence, ahimsa is the Sanskrit word, which means non-harming of others, non-harming ourselves and non-harming all of life. And Gandhi's work Mahatma Gandhi's work came out and really focused on this uh, principle. Would you describe cultural appropriation as it pertains to yoga and how, perhaps unknowingly, that may cause harm? Yes. So, um, first, I love that you brought
0: up Gandhi because what many of the teachers that I've had while studying and practicing in India are... Inspired by that movement for liberation and really by looking at how can we continue that legacy of being satyagrahis, meaning um, those striving for truth as a force of love, as a force of change. How can we live that now? You know, and, and I actually think that's what many yoga practitioners, what we're doing, whether we kind of know it or not, is working to continue that legacy of truth force and the force of love. And so when we look at cultural appropriation in its basic form, it's stealing, right? Like cultural appropriation is going into someone else's community or house or world, taking something that's theirs without permission, and then maybe tweaking it, modifying it, using it for yourself, and then benefiting from it or selling it or promoting it, but with a slightly or majorly twisted kind of um, experience of that thing. So we all on a kind of kindergarten level understand that that's wrong. Like we might have done it, you know, <clears> taken <throat> someone else's pencil or eraser, but we knew that wasn't right to yeah. take something that belongs to someone else. So that is fundamentally what
1: cultural appropriation is. It's a and, little And more if I could involved, just though. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, as I, I, I really like how you contrast that with cultural appreciation. So cultural mm-hmm. appropriation and cultural appreciation. I thought that was a really good distinction. Can you describe that for our listeners? Yes. So cultural appropriation always
0: involves power and uh, harm. So there's two criteria for cultural appropriation: power imbalance, and then harm to the source culture and cultural appreciation flips that right it's it's when you're appreciating a culture think about those moments that you've had right where you're really connecting and appreciating a culture different than your own I remember being invited to a Passover Seder you know and that's not my culture but I was like wow this is amazing and I felt very respectful and very like I want to do this um the way they would want me to do it. You know, there's a different quality there. So it actually, appreciation involves connecting with a culture from the inside out and uplifting it and learning about it, understanding it and supporting that culture, power balancing, right? So it's using those same things that can be used to harm to balance. And then the second is the opposite of ahimsa harm is ahimsa. So the actual antidote to cultural appropriation is within the practice of yoga, which is um, taking care, uplifting, going to source, you know, source teachers, teachers from within the culture, uplifting those who may have been left out or erased or put on the sidelines. And so just to give like a real concrete example there is diversifying your reading lists. Uh, If, for example, you're interested in learning and reading about yoga, find books from all the teachers that you love and also include teachers who are Indian, teachers who are South Asian. And that's one way that you can look into um, to uplifting folks from within the tradition rather than just reading folks who um, are, are not always. Um, and the other important thing I want to name there is there can be teachers of any color and culture who are within yoga lineages. And so I just want to make sure that that's understood as well and that there's a distinction there. Um, because, um, Because there's so many ways that really cultural, the alternative to cultural appropriation is about creativity. And so instead of taking from others, find ways to either creatively go into your own resources and culture and explore that or creatively find
1: solutions
0: that respect the culture that you're learning about.
1: Mm -hmm. Indeed. The other example I really wanted to ask you about was namaste. Mm -hmm. Would you please discuss namaste in this context of cultural appropriation versus cultural appreciation? Yes.
0: So, you know, as an Indian girl and then women growing up, we always said namaste or namaskar to our elders. So I'd say it like to my grandparents or to my teachers or to the priest or pundit. Um at the beginning of meeting them and often touch their feet, you know, or bow down in front of them to show a sign of respect. Literally namaste translates to bow to you. There's no I in namaste. And it's a respectful greeting, and so it's strange. Was really strange to me and to many of my family members and colleagues. When in the West, we're like, "Why? Why are people saying this at the end of a yoga class? We don't understand. It's a greeting, and it seems out of place here." And so, again, I'm not. I, as a teacher, feel like it's really important that everyone. So everyone listening, right? All the listeners, everyone out there. Come to your own understanding of what is appropriate and what isn't and not to do something just because a teacher or someone said do this or don't do this, Um, really to have that critical thinking, that vichara, that discernment. And so is it causing harm and is there a power imbalance? And so when you look at Namaste at the end of a class, it can come off as kind of orientalizing, right? Like I, the wise teacher am imparting wisdom to you, you know, and now I'm going to use a Sanskrit word and, uh, and we're done, you know? And so it just (laughs) started to feel inauthentic, um, for me. And so I, I invite people to think critically about why they're doing it. Is Mm -hmm. there another way they could get to the same impact or effect? Mm -hmm. And, um, and can they use perhaps Om Shanti Shanti Shanti, which is a traditional ending. So my mm-hmm. teacher has always ended their yoga uh, class or experience or teaching um, or something else that feels appropriate to them um, rather than taking a word out of context. And mm-hmm. um, and then we have just to say, like all of the twists on that, like Namaste and Namaste in bed and um so it's like a rhyme on a mispronunciation <laughs> and a misuse. It's just so hard, you know? It's, yeah. And it's often so on
1: painful. T, on T-shirts or on, yeah. you know, <laughs> on yoga pants or whatever, yeah. which is clearly, you know, the profit motive that you were just, you were just discussing. So, yeah. so one of the other, one of the other things that you talk about in the book is this idea about sterilization. So, Can you, oh, and you give an example of something that you read recently Mm. in Scientific American. Would Mm -hmm. you tell us about that, what you read, and why you see that as sterilization of the yoga culture?
0: Yes. So cultural appropriation can happen often in two forms, glamorization, which is sort of what we were talking about with Namaste, and sterilization. And sterilization Acquires those, the knowledge of a particular culture, and then extracts from it without, you know, kind of stripping it of its cultural origins. So we see that with like no om yoga, um, forbidding mantras, forbidding Sanskrit, forbidding certain practices like meditation as part of yoga, which really, when you look at what yoga is, makes no sense to take those things out, first of all. But recently, this is well in 2019, so in Scientific American, anuloma, veloma, alternate nostril breathing was defined as cardiac coherence breathing. And there was evidence that it actually had very beneficial impacts on um, heart patients and um, for high blood pressure, which is wonderful that it has those benefits. But it's bad scholarship to say, you know, this is a practice, here it is, I'm scientific American, but not referred to, you know, it's written about in the Vedas, like it's a practice that has been described for thousands of years. And it's a particular pranayama technique. And it was not referred to or referenced. Mm-hmm. So there we have sterilization. Why is that done, right? There's so many layers as to why. And and one of them is um, because certain cultures are held up as um, valuable and others aren't to, you know, it's probably there's a desire to make the practice more palatable to a broader number of Western folks. Mm -hmm. Um, But the invitation I would give is one isn't that underestimating our communities to think that they couldn't handle learning the history of a practice and then two it doesn't have to be so dramatic you can just say this is a practice described in you know the vedas and you can learn about it more here if you right. would like you know it's right. um it's like good scholarship yes so at least, at least a footnote right <laughs> right at very least a footnote yeah <laughs> so instead of erasing sterilizing a practice to to expand it, to acknowledge where
1: it comes from. So sterilizing something is really taking it out of its cultural context and perhaps also touching back on the stealing aspect, um, not really recognizing the full context, where these practices uh, came from and just presenting it as though it's a new idea. This, uh, <laughs> what right. are the car- cardiac resonance breathing? Was that what it was called? Yeah. Cardiac <laughs> coherence breathing. Cardiac coherence. And
0: I do, I do want to note for people cause there may be folks listening who are like, Oh, but I sometimes teach yoga to kindergartners and I don't yeah. use Sanskrit or I sometimes teach yoga, you know, in jails or prisons and I don't bring in, you know, um, mantra or mudra because they don't want to disconnect them from the the practice that's different right to Mm -hmm. me that skillful means that's upaya that's using um the aspects of the practice that will fit that person or people in front of us Mm -hmm. without with the intention of guiding towards their liberation you know as much as possible and their connection to yoga and scaffolding, right? Like you can bring it in more and more and more of the full expanse of what yoga is slowly. And that's a different thing than sterilization, which is literally saying, I'm gonna take this out and this is not worth sharing. Like who are we to say what in this thousands of year old tradition should or shouldn't be, you know, codified now? <laughs>
1: I think that's really helpful, what you just said, that the intention is what makes the difference. The intention in teaching a kindergarten class or in going into an alternate setting where there may not be acceptance of some of these practices, where even, for example, the use of Sanskrit may be um, off-putting to some, Mm -hmm. especially at the beginning, if they don't know the teacher. Um, One of the things I really appreciate about Sanskrit is, of course, so many of the words describe things that we don't have. An English word for mm. it takes many English words to describe. For example, even chitta, this mental mm. field, you know, there's you can't really say chitta in one English word. There isn't no. an English word about it, um, and so that's why I find Sanskrit useful. Is that the words have a lot of of um, well, not only beauty but also um, uh, complexity and depth uh, to them. Um, that's why I like to use Sanskrit, and it is a turnoff to some people to hear words that they don't understand and haven't had put in any kind of context for them. So um, that was very appreciated, your description there of sort of where we start and what the intention is going forward versus just taking something out of context without really ever meaning to to give it any um, history or um, the depth, the way that it sounds like the description of this cardiac coherence breathing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that you uh, discuss in the book is a lot about um, the colonialism that happened. Um, Of course, India was a British colony for many years. um, And that was how these teachings, these yoga teachings, originally started to become accessible to people is that they began to be translated into um, English and other you know languages. So, um, and that maybe is like the positive you know thing of of we were all able to get access to these mm-hmm. these um, scriptures that had not been accessible in the West before. And yet, there are also a lot of there's also a lot of negative history of co- uh, colonialism. Um, with cultural appropriation and sterilization, as we've talked about. So can you give some background on colonial trauma as it uh, pertains to yoga? Yeah,
0: so colonial trauma is really the, um, it's like the idea that (laughs) colonization isn't over, right? Like my father, for example, was born a few years into a liberated India, the British were gone. But when I asked him to tell me about the yoga culture and the rich civilization and this valley civilization and all of that that he'd learned about in school, you know, I just assume the way we learn American history in the United States, he couldn't tell me anything. He said, oh, I can tell you about this British general or that British, you know, battle or accomplishment that I haven't learned, right? And so that's colonial trauma—that the history, the connection, the pride, the respect for one's own culture, is um, is gone and is cut by, in this case, you know, just a couple hundred years of colonial rule. That's a, a simple example, but um, bring that out to it's something like almost forty trillion dollars in resources that was extracted. Um, Mm -hmm. from india by the british right that's huge colonial trauma when we look at like what countries are quote third world you know or why why is that Mm -hmm. the case (laughs) so Mm -hmm. and then how many millions of people does that impact right so that is part of colonial trauma is all of the ways that these things are showing up um, in small and large ways material across all this sort of social um Categories, really. And then if you look at yoga itself, we can see that yoga culture in the West, um, cold, quiet, clean, bare yoga rooms, competition, Mm. specialization, expert status, right? Transactional, rigid um, kind of interactions. All of that is a colonial legacy on yoga. Mm. Yoga isn't practiced that way in India. (laughs) Mm. It's like Mm. in rooms with aunties wearing saris and the kids running around and you know the teacher comes in and gives you a specific uh kriya or specific practice and you know it's it's very different and Mm. um and so undoing that colonial trauma is is really it's an invitation to kind of question what we think what we think are norms in our world and then um and then how we can like come back more into um into harmonizing, like what are the remedies? How can we connect? How can we focus on the community, not on the individual? How can we um, rege- be regenerative?
1: And with that, we've come to the end of the program. But I did want to give you a chance to read the beautiful closing dedication and meditation from your book, which is on page 267. So, would you mind reading that for our listeners? I'd love
0: to. May this work benefit all beings. May all beings learn from, grow, respect, honor, and embrace yoga. May all beings be free of separation and the causes of separation. May all beings reflect deeply. May all beings act for connection. May all beings be full of everlasting liberation. Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Peace within, peace without, peace in the world. Peace, peace, peace. Um, shanty, shanty,
1: shanty. beautiful thank you so much you've been listening to the yoga hour it's been my pleasure to share this time with you I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo and we've been discussing the ancient roots of yoga with author Susanna Barkataki the, the uh Book we've been talking about today is Embrace Yoga's Roots. You can find out more about Susanna and her work at her website, SusannaBarkataki.com. And Barkataki is just like it sounds, B-A-R-K-A-T-A-K-I. We'll also be posting her information on our website, TheYogaHour.com. Thank you so much, Susanna, for joining me today on The Yoga Hour. Thank you for listeners join me next time on the show when we will be joined by a spiritual teacher, poet and author Mark Nepo. We will be discussing how we find the inner courage to face ourselves, others and the unknown. We encourage all listeners to join us for the many online programs offered by Yogacharya O'Brien in the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment including morning meditation which occurs daily from 6.30 to 7.30 a.m., daily afternoon meditation from 4 to 4.30 p.m., and Sunday satsangs from 10 to 11 a.m. All of those are Pacific time each week. You can learn more about these programs at two websites, csecenter.org and ellengraceobryan.com. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director Yogacharya O'Brien, assistant producers Ann Hayes and Mickey Coronado, and Jeff Comfort and Louis Pagan in the sound booth at Unity Online Radio. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now.